0: for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Welcome to Inside the Hive. I am your host, Nick Bilton. I am convinced at this point that I could try out for the announcer job at the WWF where they welcome the wrestlers out, but I'm not going to do it. Welcome. Just kidding. All right. So I used to live in Silicon Valley, thereabouts, a few miles north of there. And I remember when I was covering these companies, people used to say to me, Is this person or that person, this CEO or that employee a sociopath? This was the word that was used all the time. Is Elizabeth Holmes a sociopath? Is Mark Zuckerberg a sociopath? Is Jack Dorsey a sociopath? And, you know, when you look at them in these individual moments, you think like, well, maybe, maybe not. But when you kind of look at the industry as a whole, it seems like something isn't right up there. Like there's something in the water or maybe we just need to kind of rethink what this term sociopath means. My guest today, Mike Isaac, who is a reporter for the New York Times, has written a book on someone who a lot of people ask, is he a sociopath? Yes, that's right, Travis Kalanick, who founded and started Uber. And he is here to tell me all of the crazy shit that happened at that company while it was uh, growing from nothing to being worth tens of billions of dollars, including... A crazy moment when uh, the company found out about all these murders taking place with Uber drivers and kind of looked the other way. We're going to get to all of it. We're going to talk a little bit about Twitter and how I still think it's the worst experience on planet Earth and how Mike disagrees. He has a viewpoint on that. And we're going to talk about what is going to happen to tech in the coming 2020 election, whether or whether or not a Democrat wins. So listen in. It's a great conversation and you're going to love every second of it. Mike, Isaac, I can't actually believe you're here right now in the flesh. This is so exciting. This is I feel like this has been like, what, a year and a half in the making?
1: Oh my God, Uh, almost two. Having you on the
0: show, (laughs) almost two years. Um, So, okay, I I have so many questions. We're going to talk about your new book. We're going to talk about Uber. We're going to talk about uh, Founder Worship. We're going to just get everywhere. But I want to find out, did you... um, I remember when I wrote the Twitter book, I, I, I thought Jack Dorsey was going to kind of send some goons to my house to have me, have me off. Have you shown up at your apartment yet and, like, seen, like, you know, a car waiting outside with a guy in sunglasses and a fake mustache, whose real name is Travis Kalanick, oh waiting to, like, beat you with a, a metal pipe? Has that happened yet? I have
1: not received any horse's heads delivered by Uber to my apartment quite yet. <laughs> <laughs>
0: the, the part that I think is crazy is you wrote this book, um, and you're still using Uber and Uber Eats. I mean, I would not be doing it. I would be terrified that someone was going to spit in my food or something worse than that.
1: You know, in, in um, back in 2017, when I was reporting on this, the you know the crazy year that they had, and and the building was just sort of on fire and all this stuff. A lot of my sources actually did. You know, they they said like, look, don't like take this app off your phone delete the contact list from our servers like that they you know my people were probably if not as paranoid as I was more paranoid than me just just because it's a you know it's a it's a surveillance based app they know where you are at all times you know when you're using it and and when you're not um at, for a time at least they they knew when you weren't for a little bit so so yeah there was a period where I definitely was was off uber but maybe I maybe I'm slacking in my old age
0: so let's, let's jump in to the, to the story. So, yeah. uh, you know, as, as a tech journalist covering Silicon Valley, you, you know, it seems like you have your pit, the pick of the litter of like, which, um, which tech company, they're all going to do something terrible and just, <laughs> and just vile and awful. And the CEOs are all going to be jerks and whatnot. Not all, but mostly. Mm. What, what made you decide like, all right, this is the one that I'm going to make into a book?
1: Yeah, totally. It's you know, you and I have known each other for years now, and I've always sort of thought about thought about doing a book, but never never found the right thing or moment or whatever. But I, I think like Uber's sort of uh, like apocalypse in twenty seventeen just felt like it was it was it was about Uber, but it was kind of bigger than Uber. It was this point for tech um, where folks, I think, were. Starting to expect maybe a bit more out of out of the services that they use, out of you know the behavior of the the companies that they they sort of patronize, and and I think that it really this company really encompassed all that all this sort of caricature of late stage capitalism that you can imagine um, uh, uh, goes on out here. Whether it's like you know being wilt- worth billions of dollars and and spending on you know, insane uh, headquarters, you know, black concrete and glass slabs or or um, throwing $25 million pot parties with Beyonce uh, singing to your staff or whatever, you know. It just like really represented excess. <laughs> and that's not even, that's not even, uh, yeah. that's not even exaggerated. That's just the tip of the iceberg, yeah. <laughs> and I think it was just like this excess, uh, this moment of excess and and really crystallized in this company and this worship of, of this one founder, Travis uh, Kalanick, who 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 created a world changing product, but ended up, you know, sort of biting off a bit more than you can chew in, in the meantime.
0: So, so in your reporting, so the thing that I've found so fascinating about Travis mm. is that, like you've covered all these guys, and you can say what ever the hell you want about them and they're probably going to be upset but mm. you dealt they would never let you know. Mm-hmm. Travis was the complete opposite. He was like the complete anomaly of that. I remember one time I made a mistake in a story. I thought that I had met him a Burning Man in like 2009 mm. and it turns out it was like I had met him in 2010 whatever the hell it was I don't even remember what it was like it was mm. the year was off or something and he he went to Twitter. I, literally like oh. this is like you know, and he had to, he tweeted about it. And I'm thinking to myself, like, you're the CEO of a, <laughs> at the time the company was worth $60, 70000000000 billion, and this is what you're doing with your time? <laughs> so the question I have for you is, was he just, is he an anomaly in the respect of, like, he always took it too far? Or was mm. he just thin-skinned? Like, what is the... What is it about him that that feels different from the rest of them?
1: I think, no, yeah, that's a totally, you would imagine that someone that was a multi-billionaire could, could let like little spats like that go. But maybe maybe, you know, some folks I've spoken to have wondered maybe his inability to let these fights go or let things sort of like get beyond him, maybe that was... Uh, a strength in some areas of his life, right? Like like you can remember back in 2014, 15 when they were just, it was just mainly them versus Lyft in the United States and he was just, just murdering Lyft up and down and, and, and um, his idea of winning wasn't just... Um, okay, we're gonna you know best our competitor competitor. It was it was you know we're gonna rub their nose in it, or we're gonna make sure they know that we're winning, and and nothing but complete and utter domination is what we're gonna accept. And I think that that is just you know everyone in the valley is competitive. You've you've been writing about tech forever, and and like everyone out here wants to play to win. But there's winning, and then there's Travis Kalanick's version of winning, which is just can be very obnoxious. <laughs> and maybe maybe that served him and the company for the first 5 7 years of its existence but i think there got to a point where as a leader you have to maybe realize that you've 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 you're big you you've won or you've at least come out on top and perhaps you don't have to sort of go to the mattresses for every fight or you don't have to sort of rub someone's nose in it or 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 whatever you know and and i don't know if he's capable of of understanding that, I think other leaders that might be more mature or able to grow at their companies have been able to do that, and I'm just not—I mm. haven't seen that in him so far, or at least when he was at Uber.
0: So you—you—you you, uh, you did the, the 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 good author thing, and you went back all the way through his childhood, and mm. and um and what was the, what were some of the things that you found that uh that were so kind of just shocking to you as you were as you were researching you know the young Travis Kalanick growing up to be the guy who helped start and and disrupt the taxi industry and start Uber.
1: Yeah, totally. I think the thing that there were two like really formative things that I think un- helped me understand why he became, you know, who he was later on. And one of those was just you know, is kind of archetypical of a lot of tech CEOs where he wasn't that cool when he was young, you know. He got kind of bullied as a kid and uh, very smart, very competitive, very sharp, but like just wanted to be cool for some period of time, you know, just like any of us. I mean, hell, I wanted to be cool, and finally I am cool. (laughs) One day, Mike,
0: one day. (laughs) Maybe I'll be cool. Just tell
1: tell me when I'm cool. But I think that's a really... It's a really human thing to like want to be that. And that's really where later on when you get these, you know, we would see these tweets of his of, like balling and, and like going to the club or making it rain or all this sort of like very caricature-ish uh, Wolf of Wall Street-esque version of what it means to be cool as a founder or a CEO. I think that was what he envisioned. But I don't think that, you know, unlike some of us who are, you know, I'm not as fortunate to be as naturally cool as Nick Bilton, but I, I will say, like <laughs> some some folks have to try a bit harder. And I think it I think that really it gave me some level of weird sympathy for him, and that's what really informed some of the decisions he made later on. And then I think the other thing, just outside of that, is he he was betrayed um, multiple times early on in his career. He's a serial entrepreneur, um, had done two startups before Uber. And one of his um, uh, early backers, Mike Ovitz, the super agent um, from the days of yore in L.A., um, was was someone who supported his file-sharing startup from the beginning, this this app called Scour, and ended up uh, uh, turning on him and actually letting Travis and his company get sued into oblivion while while Ovitz ended up making out okay and saving face. And I think it really informed Travis's worldview Uh, later on where, where you can't trust your friends. You can't, you can't trust your VCs. There's no one really, no one has your back and you need to protect yourself at all costs. And that would, that was a lesson he carried well into his Uber days.
0: So do you, do you think that he trusted anyone at, at Uber or, Mm. I mean, or was it, was it from, you know, always someone is out to get me?
1: No, I think that, I think, um, I think, he had, this is the thing, like he didn't have like a really large circle of friends. There, Emil Michael was one executive, the chief business officer, who um, he was like half friend, half consigliere, I guess I would say. And um, he uh, he was ironically, he was the guy brought in to sort of keep Travis under wraps or calm um, by, uh, by one of Travis's board members and, and partners, Bill Gurley. Um, and ended up being more of an enabler as it turns out or it just didn't really wasn't able to to keep things in check but I think um, I think they were his circle of people that he trusted was pretty small you know he had a girlfriend um, Gabby uh, he met through a friend uh, another VC and they were very close but then that ended and that didn't go uh, well at all and then his parents you know he trusted them and Um, but then, you know, as I talk about in the book, that sort of, there's a tragedy with his mother, like suddenly dying. So the circle, um, the circle gets smaller over time and he definitely, um, he had bros, but I wouldn't say he had trusted confidants that many, at least.
0: So one of the things that I find so fascinating about the book is that, you know, when you think about Jack Dorsey, mm. you know, he was kind of like this young feminist, for like legitimate feminist, uh, um, kind of hippie guy. Mm-hmm. Like Mark Zuckerberg was kind of like, you know, studying like Roman emperors and trying to figure out how he could be the next one. Mm. What's so different about Travis that you detail in the book so perfectly well? And the title, uh, you know, really wraps up perfectly. Is that he was he was like a bro, like he was yeah. like a legit, you know, a legit bro. And and there's the part in the beginning of the book where you talk about he kind of copies this, and I'll let you tell the story, but he kind of copies this Amazon culture, and he he does it with the bro thing. And a lot of the people uh, in the audience that at this event uh, can't tell if it's if it's a joke or if it's real. It's like almost like an SNL skit where you're like, uh, is this for real? What how? Describe that kind of culture because I, I have a hard time kind of understanding how mm. the pe- like how that uh, became so pervasive as an identity of the company and yeah. and how it affected the decisions he made and the the people he hired and and, and so on.
1: No, totally. I, I think um, it's <laughs> I think there's just like a real lack of self awareness from the very beginning from a lot of these guys that. Um, you know fortunately some of the employees at uber had but uh, to to what you're talking about i i zoom in on one of the early scenes in the book um in 2015 you know uber had just reached this internal milestone of of hitting this number of of trips and and so travis's thing is i'm going to take the company on a big vacation um to las vegas right and vegas of course is the seminal baller town where you can can ride around in black cars and and uh, go see, <laughs> go see Beyonce coming on stage and perform, which is what what uh what he did for the employees. But um, it becomes this week long sort of bacchanal where, um, you know, I I write in the book a lot of just sort of unsavory things happen. But I think it the 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 real key moment for me is he re- he does want to play up to the mythology of what it means to be a founder. You know, he, he, he writes these um, in this presentation to staff and in, in, I think it was in planet Hollywood in there um, on stage. He, he shows off these list of 14 values uh, to his employees, and you know it's in them in the vein of what Jeff Bezos had done with Amazon with the fourteen principles that sort of stand up why Amazon is what it is and why you know customer obsession and you know this company is so great. and Travis essentially wants to emulate that. He always wanted to be the next sort of Bezos, uh, but with I guess more. Axe body spray on, or something, and so he uh, <laughs> sorry, that was a cheap shot. Uh, no, no, but I, that's,
0: that's, what, that's what people are listening but for, I th-
1: <laughs> but I think that, like, that was so that what his version of doing that was essentially running through. Um, he had 14 values that he brought about for Uber, but it really was just this sort of um. Um, unself-aware, kind of bro-y version of that. So, you know, the, the title of the book, Super Pumped, was one of the values that he stressed to employees. You know, we want we want our we always want to approach life and and our work and our career with a, an attitude of super pumpedness, which I'm not quite sure if that's an adjective or a, a noun or a verb, but it 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 is it is a characteristic that he wanted all of his employees to embody and. And uh, always be hustlin' was another tenet of uh, of Uber and its fourteen values. So, like, you know, I would say fortunately there were enough people there in the audience where they were like, "Is this guy for real? Or is this is this what we're doing?" But it really sort of it set the tone, I think, for what kind of company Uber was going to be. And it was kind of hard to take them seriously, I guess, is what I would say. And then also, I think it also sort of um, made the difference between the, the employees who were there to embody this kind of bro culture and then the ones who were like, look, I just want to get in, get paid, and and then get the hell out of here.
0: And, and the people that did say I wanted to get in and get paid and get out of here made an astounding amount of money, right? I mean, let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, I think that there's a kind of misconception in the Valley mm. that you – you know you're at one of these companies and you're gonna you know you're gonna be a billionaire but there's only a few billionaires but yep. there's a whole lot of multi-millionaires yep what was kind of like so for for travis he ends up with what at the end five I think he's like five billion?
1: billion i think he's a billionaire like yeah five times over something like that
0: what what do you what do you even do with that
1: <laughs> well I, I think he bought a house i think he bought at least one house in Los Angeles and he has uh, I
0: think I heard he bought two houses. I heard he ha- he was he couldn't decide between I heard this from from a uh, from someone who spoke to him who said he, he was he was like I couldn't decide if I wanted to get a house on the east side or west side and then I realized I'll just get them both.
1: Oh my god, I love that. <laughs> I love uh, so, billionaire problems. <laughs> yes. No, I think that that's but I think your point is right. Look, I be, I mean the it's funny. We're in this time now where Uber is sort of if you look at the stock price, it's just getting absolutely hammered, and there are questions around if the business model is what it can be, like if it's an actual business model that can be sustainable. But um, early on, you know, anyone who was who had the foresight enough, or frankly the luck enough, to invest in Uber in the first few years of its existence, or go work for Uber in the few, for, for you, first few years of its existence, has just is made out with more money than God at this point, right? The early backers, the um, you could argue, benchmark made one of benchmark capital the, the the one of the firms invested in Uber made one of the greatest venture investments of all time, um, multiplied I don't know dozens of times over, if not hundreds, and um, and uh, yeah, the uh, right now this last uh, earnings quarter they had uh, they just took five. I want to say five billion in more than five billion in losses because, particularly because of the amount of stock comp they're paying out to employees who had been there for the past, you know, you know, few years before they went public as a company. So this, that's the. I, I live in San Francisco, and the, this, um what I'm curious to look at is like what this city is going to look like post um, post Uber IPO, post Lyft IPO, post this next wave of. We work Peloton, whatever IPOs that's coming and, and what this is gonna do to uh, the fabric of, of this city at this point. But there's yeah, there's a lot of people that made if not if not billions from the early on, then millions from uh, from their time at the company.
0: You are listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. Hey John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in twenty twenty-four, but quantity doesn't cut it. So, when you look at the company now, there's there's been a lot of um, a lot, as you just mentioned, there's been a lot of people saying like, oh, well, this isn't a viable business because mm. you know the thing that I find so fascinating about the whole concept is you know what what and correct me if I'm wrong here, but what Uber did differently was it wasn't that it it connected you, it wasn't that it it allowed people to be drivers or to for you to get a ride from your neighbor. It was the fact that it connected you with that person because. Mm. You know the taxi industry. The taxi industry was was you weren't paying for the taxi per se because you could have kind of knocked on your neighbor's door and said, "Hey, can I pay you fifty bucks to give me a ride to the airport?" Mm. You were paying for someone to dispatch you, and what they did was they they kind of created this, this. They got rid of that middleman, and they they were Uber was the middleman. And the next level of that when you have a driverless car is why do you need Uber? Because every driverless car could have software. Like why would Tesla, for example, if they have fully autonomous a- autonomous vehicles? allow uber to be the middleman between that so yep. is that part of the reason that there's so much distress about what the future of this company is or is it that they are not necessarily worth what they have you know what they went public at
1: no i think i think your points are good i feel like it's honestly a little bit of both of those things i think the grand irony of uber now is that they you have to credit them with unlocking um the idea of the gig economy, if they didn't, they didn't, they weren't the one to invent ride sharing, but they're the ones to popularize it, you know? And, um, the idea that you can sort of get on demand, whatever from your phone, I think really was sort of, um, made popular by Uber. And so that's, you know, that's, you know, whether you think that's a good thing or not, it's, it, it is here to stay. Right. So, um, that said, like it, it, it's, it would be, Pretty, uh, I guess, funny, sad—take your pick. Uh, if if Uber can popularize a category uh, without actually making money from it or making a business from it, and and that's still a TBD. You know, one of the things I do think that was a mistake in retrospect is, you know, Travis had, Travis had raised so much. I mean, I've never seen. I, I mean, just personally, I've never seen any, any private technology company raise the amount of money they had. In the ten years that they were private, they raised more than ten billion dollars. In sometimes, in some cases, like billions of dollars per round, and it just seemed like it was game over um, uh,
0: because of. But that. that money was that money was because he believed it's we have a we only have minutes to be the biggest company before someone else comes in and usurps us, right?
1: Yeah, I think that I think there so was, was the
0: strategy right or was the strategy wrong?
1: Well, I think the. The strategy was predicated on the idea that if we get the biggest war chest, we're going to just sort of take the whole category and we won't have anyone, no competitors can sort of challenge us because we've outraised them all. But I think that the, the problem with that is that, you know, the funding environment has changed. You have the soft banks of the world that can come in and just flood the zone with like $100 billion vision funds and dole out money to... To what? To Didi, to Ola, to or to to food delivery app folks uh, like um, uh, Doordash or whatever. So even though SoftBank, SoftBank's a whole other like podcast worth of material. But even though SoftBank is is a um, backer of Uber, um, they they are also backing some of Uber's enemies. So you end up like having Uber like money fighting against itself. But so there's that plus the idea that Uber, you know, Lyft is in a slightly better position only because they have to fight battles in the U.S., whereas Uber has to spend money to fight battles on, you know, multiple continents and hundreds of cities across the world. So, you know, I think maybe Travis's um, idea was probably sound five to seven years ago, but it just seems like a really different time now. And plus... um, uh, that plus the the uh, the idea that you they also raised their valuation so enormously high before coming uh, into the public markets that it was hard to sort of continue thinking it could go up from there. It only kind of kind of went down from from when they went public.
0: All right. So here's a question that I think is going to be a little difficult for you to answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. <laughs> is Travis a good guy or a bad guy? Mm. You know this? Yeah. It's, I, <laughs> I, I, I'll preface this with yeah. you know, I personally, I'll be the asshole. <laughs> I personally think most of these guys are douchebags. <laughs> I think that that I think that's they are. I don't think they started out as douchebags, but you that's know, true. there's the 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 classic line of you know, if you want to see what a a, a man is really like, you know, give him power. Mm. There's, it's of course a little bit more eloquent than I just mm. said it, but no, no, I get it. Um, but I but I think that I think that they become so the the, the money. I remember when I was doing the, um, the the Twitter book, and I remember I said to Biz Stone, mm. who was the co-founder, and and he, I said, you know, what does money do to you? Does it does it change you? And he said, no, I don't really believe that money changes anyone. I think it just it just puts a magnifying glass on the aspects of you that are already there. So if you're a really good person, you'll be a better person. You'll give more money away. You'll try to help more people. If you're an egotist, you'll be more egotistical. Mm. If you, you know, whatever it is, if you are, if you want power, you'll get, you'll want more power. And, Mm -hmm. and I look at, and I, I look at Travis and I genuinely kind of, I can't tell, he doesn't seem like the greatest person. Like he <laughs> right. seems like he's got some real issues going on there. Yep. But I'm curious as someone who lived in his, who, who, who he moved into your head for a couple of years as you were writing this book, like what yeah. do you think?
1: Yeah, you know, it's really, um, it's really hard because I talked to so many people. Actually, it's funny. Everyone that I talked to around him um, and everyone who's been there either from the beginning or later on or have spent significant amount of time with him, all feel really conflicted. They might, it's like one day they might say the guy is a sociopath or has like, like serious problems. And the other day, the the next day they'll be like, you know, I, I love him. I can't get rid of him or whatever. So I think everyone who has a relationship with him on at least some level that's, you know, have worked alongside of him for some period of time can care for him while also feeling, um, burned or, or like they can't trust him. And, and that, that just seemed to be a theme in, in the reporting that came up over and over. I, I sort of have a grudging respect for him, if that makes sense, just because he became like, um, uh, like I've just never seen anyone as resilient in these constant battles. And even, you know, I definitely would take issue with, behavior and and um and uh some of the you know some of the ways we've crossed each other in the past and um but it was never um but i guess like at the end of the day like i i would try to give him what he's due in terms of like uh you know he built this insane thing against very large odds and like so like on a base level i can at least appreciate that but like look is he is he um Uh, does he, is he like walking grandmas to church or, or like, uh, do I, have I seen him donate his millions to like the, the, (laughs) the the giveaway pledge or whatever? I haven't seen that yet. So it's hard for me to say like he's a good or a bad guy, but just, I will, I, I do have a grudging amount of respect for him is what I would say.
0: So okay, so let's talk about a couple of couple of scenes in the book, uh, sure. and they are definitely are scenes um, and very cinematic. What were some of the most shocking moments to you in the reporting that you discovered? Kind of talk us through some of those.
1: Yeah, sure. So I think I think one of the things that I was really surprised at is is the amount of like violence um, involved in in this company and and um, uh, the way it differs from um, say like a Facebook or a Snapchat or whatever, is that like Uber, Uber would Uber has to sort of parachute into countries and set up shop overnight. And that can mean just like barreling into um cultural or economic situations that you don't have any clue about, right? So in we talk about in, in this one moment in time, the security chief has to deal with Uber moving into Brazil. And one of the things that um the company, and I think all startups, or many startups, but especially Uber, was talking about is just, it had to grow, or, you know, you're, if you're not growing, you're dying. Your, your company has to grow. And so they were growing as fast as they could in Brazil uh, when they parachuted in there. But meanwhile, like this, um, the, cu- the country's in the middle of economic turmoil, humongous recession, uh, Im- unemployment was skyrocketing, and they're having these drivers, uh, Uber drivers carry all cash uh, to service customers as as drivers so all of a sudden they start getting this rash of um, riders uh, who are using fake identities to sign up and essentially rob and start killing uber drivers in brazil and that you have a string of more than a dozen murders over over months in brazil because of the lack of safeguards and identity checks in the um, rider sign up version of the app and, it, and they recognized this and took a significant amount of time to change until they 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 fixed that and it really disturbed me that 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 was allowed to happen i guess
0: isn't there but isn't the the part that is so astounding about that isn't it that they uh that the murders were were um they were strangling the drivers uh and that the the the, the, the that they could see uber could see in the data like the 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 car jerking back and forth Like these people are actually like, they know what's going on mm. and they do nothing to stop it. Like wh- how, I mean, we go back to this, like, is he a good guy or is he a bad guy? Like if that were me, I'd be like, let's shut the whole fucking thing down right now. Like right. Th- this is really, you know, like we ran over one kitten. We've got to stop this whole thing. Right. Uh, and yet like people are literally being murdered and, and their, the response is kind of, you know, slow and lackadaisical. Like, yep. it, what what does that say about doesn't that say maybe not
1: such a guy? <laughs> <laughs> no i think well like to to your point i think there's like the what is it there's like maybe it's a sociologist this like trolley the trolley problem right like there's this sort of um greater good idea that they're doing something in service of the greater good so once we um or or when um when elon musk had the problem with um uh, self-driving, uh, sort of malfunctioning, right? Like the statement wasn't immediately like, we're sorry, this is horrible. We're doing everything we can. It's, it was essentially like, this is going to happen, but we're on the way to progress. Right. And I think that that mentality is very prevalent out here. Right. I think, I think, um, and if you're looking at it through a very cold, hard, rational lens, you can understand well, where they say like, well, once we get to ubiquity in these countries, then it will be worth it or whatever. But I think, to your point, mo- most um, uh, most compassionate people might be at least somewhat disturbed on, 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 on when, when they face with some of these dilemmas. So,
0: yeah, it's, this is it's why y- Mike, this is why you and I are not billionaires. <laughs>
1: That's right.
0: That's right. <laughs> That's right. You are listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. We've all heard these crazy stories of boardroom coups and so on and so forth, mm. but Uber Uber may take the cake. Uh, it's 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 up in the top three. <laughs> um, tell the story of of how this all kind of goes down. And you were covering this for the Times at the time. Mm. Uh, you know you 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 know this inside out and backwards. Um, can you set the stage and kind of tell us this this crazy moment?
1: Yeah. So I think the real crux of it comes down to um, you know Uber's 2017 they suffer sort of blow after blow the whether you know Susan Fowler an ex employee sending an internal memo like blowing the whistle on internal harassment or uh, you know there was multiple DOJ investigations based on a number of incidents that were uncovered by reporting by uh, members of the press. Or uh, or was it a, a, a lawsuit from Waymo uh, against Uber for, you know, them accusing them of theft of trade secrets and their property, uh, intellectual property? It was just one thing after another. So by the summer of 2017, um, a cabal of investors, uh, early backers on Uber had said, you know, this is enough. Travis is now a liability and we need to remove him. So, Travis is essentially, uh, uh, blindsided at a hotel in Chicago and we get, I get into pretty granular detail about this in the book, but it's this real, um, I think the crux of the book is, is kind of, uh, probably the tragedy of Travis is that like, he's kind of proven right, you know, like his, all of his suspicions of, of, um, venture Mm -hmm. capitalists betraying him end up coming true and, and call it a self-fulfilling prophecy or just sort of like a crazy turn of events or whatever, but he's, he's ultimately felled by uh, folks that were his backers and close to him and, and folks that he didn't think he could ever trust in the first place. It's very dramatic. And, and um, it was the most insane thing I've ever reported on.
0: (laughs) Do you think that, um, you know, there's always these questions and this happened Twitter Jack Dorsey came back three times, mm. even though he was ousted in a very dramatic way, and then came back to to oust his his co-founder. Oh, that was and, great. Um, uh, another great uh, dramatic board moment. Uh, but he pulled it off. Like he legitimately was. He didn't give up. He mm. and and I would say Jack Dorsey is not as aggressive as um, not even remotely as aggressive as uh, as Travis Kalanick. Mm-hmm. I don't think I've actually ever covered a CEO who's as aggressive as Travis. But um, that said, do you think that Travis is going to, you know, plan a coup to come <laughs> back and, and overthrow Dara and take over the company again? And you know
1: That would be, it would make for a really good story. I think right now, I think he's, <laughs> I think he's smart enough to keep his head down. And right now he's working on a startup that's has to do with food delivery and dark kitchens, cloud kitchens is what it's called. and But it's still like sort of symbiotically attached to Uber. And I think that worries folks that are still at the company uh, inside of Uber. Like, okay, well, our ousted former boss is still kind of in the space. And this funny thing that's happening right now, you know, Dara Shahi, the current CEO, is under a lot of pressure. The stock is in the toilet. Um, employees are kind of some employees are, I would say, to be fair to Dara, like a lot of employees are happy the building isn't on fire and things have calmed down. But there's also a meme now that's very interesting where there's a longing for the fire that Uber had from its earlier days, right? And this sort of aggressiveness and energy. And it's, it's, it's crazy to me to think that people would um, want or maybe long for a return of the king, return of Travis to come back to his company as a wayward founder, but that meme exists out there, and so I don't know if it's possible just uh, in terms of how the stock and structure is set up and everything, but, you know, I wouldn't rule it out.
0: Well, once you get, you know, those same people that ousted Travis, if, if their net worth starts to drop <laughs> by, by a comma, <laughs> they... Uh, uh, they will be probably more than happy to to, to help you know uh, pull off a trojan horse i mean the thing that was so fascinating with dorsey mm. was you know he, when he got kicked out he went off he started square and mm. his, his first attempt to try to come back was to have twitter buy square and then him come mm. in as, as ceo it didn't work out that way so he he figured out another way to do it but <laughs> you could totally imagine travis pulling something like this off mm, have, you, um, you have you write a heard sequel, from travis
1: you gotta oh, write no, a Twitter book you. sequel. I, I,
0: I want. I am so done writing about <laughs> writing long books about rich white men who have like who have issues because they were like picked on and given a wedgie in high school. Like I'm done with that part of my life. Uh, have you um, uh, have you have you heard from Travis or heard through anyone from him? You know, does he, has he read the book? Does I
1: ha- I do not. I I hope he reads the book. We have not spoken. Um, I, uh, I, I know that he was not looking forward to this, didn't want it to, to happen and, and, uh, uh, look, I don't think he ever really wanted me to, to do a book on this and maybe, maybe he probably didn't think it was going to happen at some point just because I went away for a year and a half to do it and maybe I forgot about it or I just flaked out, but, Uh, I I don't know. I hope he reads it. I think I do think that just through other people who have talked to him that I've talked to, he 2017 was like the hardest period of the guy's life. And and uh, I think he it's hard for him to go through this again with this book coming out and sort of the headlines, you know, my excerpts and in Vanity Fair, like it just sort of details the gnarliest points in his life. So I imagine he's just not happy reliving that. Um, but I also imagine that he's, he knows to keep his head down and just continue doing his current thing. Um, and that's probably a safer way of, of maybe staging his own, um, uh, if not come back at Uber, just come back personally and, and become a revered figure again. So keeping his head down is probably a smart way to go.
0: But to become a, you know, to make a comeback and become a public figure again and start, you know, speaking on stages and doing talks and whatnot, um, would require him to uh to kind of let go of some of his mm. animosity towards a lot of people i mean i mm-hmm. I told you this story i i haven't told this story publicly, but i will, I'll tell it now i i you know met Travis ten years ago i i may get the date wrong don't tweet at me <laughs> uh, and um and you know you' you're friends with some of these people and you cover them at the same time and sure. they know that's the deal and um and I remember, uh, you know, after he tweeted that silly tweet, I was like, eh, "Whatever," and moved on. And sure. and I was at um, I was at uh, an event for a Vanity Fair event, uh, the Oscars party this last year for work. And I'm mm-hmm. just doing my thing, work wise. And and I see him, and we we are there's a crowd of people, oh, no. and I'm walking from one direction, and he's walking from another direction. It's almost like there's a tunnel, and there's only one way through. <laughs> oh, and we're God. like, you know, when you got to pull over to the side for the other <laughs> car to pass, like. Yep. And I was like, hey. Hey and I put my hand out and he looked at me and he goes I'm not shaking your hand homie no. and he kept he kept walking and at first I was like at first I was like good for him you know what like like what a baller that he's going to like be like you know what I don't like the things you wrote about me or said about me. I'm not gonna be. I'm not gonna pretend to be nice to you. And at first, I literally was like,
1: like "That right. was amazing!
0: Like, like <laughs> pat on the back." And then I bumped into a mutual friend of ours, and I just t- at the party, and I told him what happened, and he was like, "Are you kidding? The guy's worth six billion dollars, and like you haven't written about him in six months, and he's that's how he reacts to you. Imagine how he'd react to Mike Isaac. Uh, oh, I don't no, know but if you would p- shake my hand. <laughs> The point is that you know I barely covered the company I wrote about it tangentially a little bit you know you know I haven't seen the guy in a long time um I don't imagine he's listening to this podcast if you are <laughs> hey Travis call me I love you um but but I but the fact that he felt that way towards me mm. like the thousands of people higher up on that chart who Who've legitimately wronged him, like mm. kicked him out of his own company, you know? talked to the press about him. Talk to you, your books, like all these, th- like these yeah. columns that have been brutal. Like he, like you, it's like the AA. I, I've never gone through AA, but I, I this is the part where you have to kind of go and knock on everyone's door and make an apology. Like it would take him years <laughs> to, to to get through that. Like
1: I don't think he d- would go through that.
0: <laughs> but how to how? So the so I guess the question is is like is is there if there is a comeback mm. is it a comeback as the same person or is it a comeback as a different person And it doesn't feel like it could be the same person if you hold that much yeah. animosity towards that many people
1: i think this is the thing that and this is the sort of thing that keeps um some of his friends turned enemies up at night and the question that everyone sort of asks is like can you can a person change you know at a certain point are you who you are or can you change and grow uh, after your experiences and become someone else? And I don't know, maybe that is the tragedy of Travis. You know, I, you know, some folks sort of say that I sound like I'm sympathetic now, but like maybe that's just, he, his hubris is that he was perfect for a very specific period of time in this company. And no longer after he reached a certain point, you know, maybe he's not capable of changing. I don't know. I don't know. And that said, like, some people will grow up or he went through a lot. So I'd be happy to have him prove me wrong and and come back, you know, better than ever. But I, I think that's a question that still haunts a lot of people that, that know him or knew him in the early years.
0: I think the thing that I find so—I mean, I went through a period um, when I was going through an incredibly tough time at work. Mm. When I was at the Times, when my mom died of cancer mm. very suddenly, and it was like a very fundamentally changing moment for me. And yeah, and I had a, I had a kid, my first child, three weeks later, and the whole oh it really had a, a massive impact. All of it together at the same time on. The decisions I made about my life and what I wanted to do when I grew up, and, and so mm. on, and and I and I I legitimately did feel terrible for the guy when his mom passed away yep. in the midst of all of this crazy shit that was going on. Yep. Uh, so ma- maybe that did have an impact, and maybe that's why we haven't heard from him because he did have some sort of change of heart. But he didn't shake my hand at the Oscars <laughs> party. And I'm really sad about that. <laughs> you are listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. Uh, before we let you go, I want I want to jump into um, a couple of other topics, um, yeah. and you know, and that you cover in in the tech world. Yeah. So you you've been writing about um, all of these other companies, and it seems like. It, there's been a change of heart since from when you and I birthed, first started covering this world mm. over a decade ago. You know, back then we were all super excited about every technology and Twitter and Facebook yes. and, and Uber and you name it. And now it feels like we are not so much. You, you're <laughs> yeah. still – do you still use – I don't use Twitter that much. Are you still using it? You? I remember you were probably one of the most <sighs> prolific tweeters know, there are. sad. <laughs> do you still – do you still twat a lot? Or? I,
1: I tried to, you know what, I, I would, I would like to say I tried to kick it and I have periods of time in which I'm off it, but no, I'm still on it. I think probably now, uh, you know, I think there's two things. One, um, I, it actually has been helpful in reporting. So I will say that that, that is it. But, but I do think that reporters like Tend to over-index on that and and legitimize it as their reason for being on it and then stay on it all the time. So it's been a better version of my life with when I go through periods when I don't have as much reliance on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and whatever. So I don't think I'm I don't think I could ever do it cold turkey. I feel like I'm just sort of will always go through a pendulum of using these services and and not you know. And um
0: but do you think there's going to be a larger societal pushback if, yeah. if you know? Look, you know, our my former colleague and your current colleague Farhad Manji was just like you. He used it all the time, and then had this moment of like, what am I doing? Yep. And 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 stopped. And and I I don't actually know a living breathing human being that still checks their Facebook on a regular basis. <laughs> yep. Um, uh, it, it, do you think that we're at the beginning of a societal change with all these technologies, specifically mm-hmm. kind of social stuff, and um, or is it just like us loser people, journalists that are kind of just bored?
1: <laughs> no, I think I think I really do think, and that's actually part of why I wanted to write the book because um, I, I think you know even beyond Uber, I think we're at a point where people are more conscious of what goes into a company, of what a service does, of how not just its employees behave but how the 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 apps operate and I don't think you can get away I don't think Facebook could get away with the things it was doing 10 years ago um, with the level of scrutiny that's going on today you know and like my my thesis at least is you know reporters have and this is you know I've thought about this too like how how my coverage uh, has shaped things over time and should I have been critical earlier or have I been too excited for certain things or have we been too optimistic? But I think this is – I think you're absolutely right in that we're in this sort of reckoning period, if you want to call it tech lash or whatever. I think there's going to be probably government actions, whether you consider them um, weak or strong enough, that's that's one thing. But I think there's going to be at least more conscious levels of of legislation around how the services work and how they operate and how much power is consolidated in some companies in the United States. Um, And then I also think we're going to move – past that into like a post it's not like optimism and it's not full pessimism it's just sort of how do we live um with tech in our lives in a way that we can stomach you know in a way that isn't just completely um pervasive and disgusting and 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 that's going to be just an ongoing dance because you know unless we unless we get nuked into oblivion which i hope doesn't happen tech is not going to go anywhere go away anytime soon you know so I think do it's you think you think that we're that.
0: going to you, you've covered some of the uh, congressional hearings and so on. Yeah. Do you think that uh, depending maybe it's dependent on uh, and I'm curious your, your answer to this. Mm. It, maybe it's dependent on who wins in 2020. But do you think that mm. that we are going to have to have some sort of regulation to stop the things that happened 10 years ago uh, from happening today?
1: I do th- yeah i think I think the it's really funny back when you and I were writing about Facebook and Instagram and those those acquisitions, like I don't think today like that f t c the f t c would not let an Instagram acquisition go through today, right That's a good like, point. i I think yeah. that I think it's just really different in terms of i think the f t c ten years ago was just very much um i guess I would say asleep at the wheel or just didn't really understand the consequences of. Of what swallowing up some of these networks would mean and how how much power one can corner, and I think now they're probably going to. I'm I'm still it's still the jury's still out for me on whether they're going to sort of really clamp down or, and punish Facebook if they're going to um, break them up or just sort of levy like huge fines or whatever. I do think it will ma- it will be dependent on who wins in 2020, what sort of like. Um, Broader uh, policy ideas that the winners have, and who's appointed to the FTC, and what senators are sort of um, up and coming. This Josh Hawley, who's a Republican, is actually sort of the anti the anti Republican in that he's very anti tech in a lot of ways, but but um, uh, in in ways that would make you think uh, are less Republican and less free market than than they usually are. So it's a w- very weird time, a very weird mix of, of free market slash, um, uh, regulated, you know, pro regulation folks. And, and I think a lot depends on next year who takes power and, and what's going to be, uh, what, who's going to be setting the rules.
0: Um, let's talk about Twitter for one minute. Sure. Uh, I, you mean, you, you, you said that, you know, we would have covered these companies differently. Like if I'd have known what Twitter would become today, mm. uh, uh, the book I wrote would have been a drastically different book, probably mm. not, probably definitely. Do you think that that you know you look at the way it has kind of allowed Donald Trump? And I know you're a New York Times reporter, so you're not allowed to have an opinion on these things. Mm-hmm. So just 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 uh, do the best you can. <laughs> um, but uh, um, do you think that 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 the company should be doing more to kind of control? Uh, mm. The the hate speech, if you will, that um, uh, I mean, it's just it's just it's it's so fucking different from. And I'm sorry the 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 cursing here. It's just it is so drastically different mm. to what it was, ju- like when it first started. And, and it yeah. seems like you know, it seems like the company embraces that. It, they do nothing mm. to try to stop it whatsoever. It's like it's almost like you know. Um, if you they they see that the, the 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 turmoil on there drives users to use it, and the thing that pisses me off the most about about Twitter is that you know people internally are, the 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 rhetoric internally is well it's it's a reflection of society. It's just a technology. <laughs> Bullshit. It's a reflection of society. It is a reflection of society. If we all like walked around with masks on so we couldn't see people's facial expressions and could only yell at each other for like 14 seconds at a time and that's it and and where we all ganged up on one person every 15 seconds like it's just it seems like there are technological solutions to the problem of that platform and yeah. yet they don't seem like they want to change them yeah what's how does that play out you think it's there's is is this you, I mean, you're the only person I know who likes it. <laughs> Literally, I don't know anyone else. You, no. and I don't even think Jack Dorsey likes it. Honestly, I think it's just you. No, I, th- uh, <laughs> I do think that. Like, I
1: do. To your point, I do think that um, they're in this weird position where, you know, they they they're terrified of Republicans crying censorship. I will say, Republicans have found a, an excellent weapon in bludgeoning Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and basically any tech company that gives a sort of speech platform with this idea of censorship, if they hammer them with any sort of rules around uh, speech or taking down their tweets or their posts or whatever. And tech companies are much more sensitive and one could argue maybe perhaps overly sensitive to what Republicans are sort of ironically overly sensitive to give Republicans more room than than some people feel that should be allowed Um, so they've managed to sort of beat their, beat the tech companies into submission by doing that. Um, I think there's, there's going to be, I think, you know, one solution, uh, would be to the, or the, the sort of big rub is that Zuckerberg or Dorsey or anyone who owns and operates a YouTube, like a huge platform like this doesn't want to rein in their own power. It's still about keeping the the platform as big as possible, reaching as many people as possible and like so like a, any form of like self-limiting or self like restriction is 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 almost counterintuitive to how they want to spread and operate. So it seems like they're going for two different things at the same time. Like make it a safe place to be but also don't stop growing and continue sort of like spreading everywhere and we want everyone to use it. And I don't think, I don't think there's any real tidy solution to policing things at this scale. I think as long as people figure out ways to weaponize and manipulate platforms faster than we can even foresee them, then it's just going to continue happening. It's really, it's, it is pretty dark uh, view in my opinion.
0: (laughs) It's very dark. It is. It is very dark. All right. So, last last couple of questions. Yeah. Um, is there anything you're kind of excited about in technology? Is <laughs> there like you know anything that you're like woo?
1: It's or actually is it good. It's <laughs> just like
0: oh. <laughs> um, oh. The I will
1: say the one thing that brings me joy, and maybe this is like me. Being I don't know.
0: If you say Twitter, I'm gonna hang <laughs> No, have it is you. not Twitter, I swear <laughs> to God.
1: It's not Twitter. i the, the one thing where I like go down a fun hole is um, do you ever look at TikTok? Have you ever gotten any viral videos on TikTok?
0: I I've got I have I have spent some time on TikTok <laughs> and I had a discussion with a friend about this about oh look, it's like such a creative place. And they were like, Yeah, but it kind of monotonized the creativity. But I, I did I had a night where I Uh-oh. spent probably three hours looking at um at the the cowboy dance videos on TikTok <laughs> and loved every second of Isn't it. Isn't that
1: great? Like that's the thing. Yeah. Once you go down one of those TikTok holes, like it was actually like joy. Like Sarah, my my wife and I, Sarah, we both like would just sort of watch this stupid stuff and it was actually a real fun. It felt like what the internet was mm. early on when you could still like have joy from it or whatever, and I'm sure there will be a day in which like you know Russian spycraft starts manipulating my brain through stupid TikTok videos. But at least right now, it's very nice. <laughs> so like that's you, my. How
0: do you do you tick or talk or how do you? Do what's I the? Tick what's or they talk? like? Uh, do you do you TikTok or do you tick? I do don't talk? know
1: what is. I don't I don't I don't I think I'm too old to TikTok. I think I'm just a passive consumer at this point. Like like mm. a, on Twitter I'm um I actively put stuff out into the Twitter sphere, but I think this I think you know with every new generation of um uh, new wave of apps and sort of wave of creators, I think this one has passed me by and I'm more like a, a, a consumer of TikToks. And, and I think I'm okay with that. Like at this point, I don't need to be a TikTok name. I'm fine with just sort of like seeing what bubbles up to the top and then and then enjoying that, but um,
0: I actually kind of you know. I actually kind of love that you still tweet a lot. It's like <laughs> I I did, I I do I actually tweet probably like once once every three weeks now, and every time I do it, I'm like, why God did I do that? Because I get all these responses of people that are like, you're an asshole, your dog's ugly, oh, God. you know, like get a new haircut or whatever, <laughs> and and like I imagine that that like maybe like five years from now, it's like. It's just you and Donald Trump on Twitter. There's no one else there. And you guys are like, hey, what's up? What's oh up? Oh, my you God. Um, <laughs> the global town square. Out, <laughs> the global town square, two people. <laughs> um, all right. So last question for you. Um, with the book, uh, we'll go back to the book for, for a second here. Yeah. Um, do you uh, – it, it, what is the like – your favorite moment, you know, I, I, we all have, when we write books, we all have like a favorite moment that stands mm. out to us. Like what is your favorite, favorite thing that you discovered or, th- or that you got to write like a passage or whatever it is. Like the moment that you're like that, that was really cool or fun or whatever it is. Like what's the thing that you're, I guess the most proud of uh, in there. Sure. Uh, th- th-
1: I think there's probably two things, but I think in terms of, I th- well, okay, I'll just say the one thing that I think was kind of hilarious. Um, in the middle of Um, Ubers, Uber plans this, you know, they've had months of like culture horror show, um, revelations, and they did this big, um, presentation exploring, you know, this is our investigation into our culture issues and we're going to make this company a good place for women to work and, uh, or we're doing the right thing and turning it around. And so they have this internal presentation, where uh, they're talking about how they're going to make Uber a great place for women. And then one of the board of directors, uh, members, uh, uh, David Bonderman, goes on stage and starts, he makes a misogynist comment about how women talk too much uh, in the middle of this presentation. And it was just sort of like... (laughs) perfect (laughs) like absurdity like moment of like oh my god how does uber shoot itself in the foot even on its redemption tour right and Um, in the one of my sources yeah one of my sources told me about bill gurley um another board member was on stage and when when he heard uh, Bonderman make this remark, he just buries his head in his hands and starts shaking his head. And he's like, oh, my God, we can't win. Even on our best day of trying to dream ourselves, still have to just shoot ourselves in the foot. So it's kind of the story of this company. It's sort of a comedy of errors um, that lasted for at least a year, if not much longer. <laughs>
0: Well, the book's amazing. It's just, it's like a thriller page turner. Uh, I loved every second of it. Um, the book Thanks, is man. super pumped. The battle for Uber, go buy it now or listen to it or, or have it injected into your veins or watch it on TikTok. Um <laughs> uh, Mike, thank you very much. I really, really appreciate it.
1: Nick, thank you so much for having
0: me. Thanks to my guest this week, Mike Isaac, who I do not think is a sociopath, but time will tell. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. That's me. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a very nice review while you're there. It's not that difficult to say something nice rather than something mean. Eh. thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work and thanks of course to my sponsors this week Lightstream, KiwiCo, and Stamps.com please support them the same way you support this podcast I'll see you next week for a guest that is going to blow your mind have a good one
1: Three, two, one. Political Breakdown is a daily politics podcast from KQED in San Francisco that goes
0: deep into the issues you care about.